Hi, I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. And you're listening to The Doctor's Art, a podcast that explores meaning in medicine. Throughout our medical training and career, we have pondered, what makes medicine meaningful? Can a stronger understanding of this meaning create better doctors? How can we build healthcare institutions that nurture the doctor-patient connection? What can we learn about the human condition from accompanying our patients in times of suffering? In seeking answers to these questions, we meet with deep thinkers working across healthcare, from doctors and nurses to patients and healthcare executives, those who have collected a career's worth of hard-earned wisdom. Probing the moral heart that beats at the core of medicine, we will hear stories that are by turns heartbreaking, amusing, inspiring, challenging, and enlightening. We welcome anyone curious about why doctors do what they do. Join us as we think out loud about what illness and healing can teach us about some of life's biggest questions. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Mimi Dunn, a pioneer in palliative medicine and end-of-life care in New York State, who is engaged in innovation to address suffering and improve the care of the dying. A graduate of St. Louis University School of Medicine, Mimi completed her postgraduate education at the University of Chicago and trained in mindfulness-based stress reduction at the University of Massachusetts. She's board certified in emergency medicine, as well as hospice and palliative medicine. As medical director of Hudson Valley Hospice, Mimi founded the region's first palliative care program. Mimi has authored numerous articles and book chapters on emergency medicine, palliative medicine, and global health and is an advisor to the African Center for Research in End-of-Life Care in Rwanda and Bulamu Healthcare in Uganda. Most recently, Mimi was a fellow at Stanford University's Distinguished Careers Institute, during which time she taught a course at the medical school on palliative care. Welcome to the program, Mimi, and thanks for being here. Thank you, Henry and Tyler. So nice to be with you. Uh, Many of our listeners may not be quite familiar with what palliative care is or looks like. In your words and in your own experience, what is palliative care and what does it look like? Well, palliative care is a medical subspecialty of 10 medical specialties from anesthesiology to surgery. My background is emergency medicine. I would say most people come from a background of internal medicine or family medicine but it also includes obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, physical medicine and rehab, psychiatry and neurology, and radiology. If you think of it, many of those specialties have the commonality of either intense symptom management or oncology patients. So palliative care is specialized medical care for people living with a serious illness. It focuses on providing relief from symptoms and and the stress of illness for both patients and families with the goal of improving quality of life. And it's appropriate for patients at any age, at any stage of illness. And I will advise our listeners that they can go to the website getpalliativecare.org for more information. Can you briefly tell us your path from emergency medicine to palliative medicine? Sure. After residency, I trained at the University of Chicago Emergency Medicine Program, and I stayed in Chicago at another residency program as faculty for a year. 
Then my husband, who's also an emergency physician, Jack, was recruited to New York's Hudson Valley, midway between New York City and Albany, to take over an emergency department contract. In those days, the pendulum had swung toward outsourcing hospital-based physician services, and he built a business providing physician services to hospitals. And I was one of his physicians. So we moved to New York. And during that time, probably about 10 years after residency, we had a dear friend who was dying of prostate cancer, and he asked us to help care for him, which was my introduction to hospice. And after our friend's death, I completed the hospice volunteer training and wound up becoming the hospice medical director when the position opened. This was in the late 1990s before hospice and palliative medicine was an American Board of Medical certified subspecialty. At the time, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine did provide a certification of its own, and they had an excellent self-paced CME curriculum. The National Hospice Community was also very supportive and generous. So it was a position I was self-educated for, and it goes without saying that I learned a huge amount from my nursing and social work colleagues. It was very, very different from the emergency department because I saw patients at home, which was a a much richer and a, a new perspective for me. I also had to learn a different sort of pain management than we used in emergency medicine. So the learning curve was pretty steep, but the work felt very meaningful. So you were able to identify a gap in palliative care uh, in your region. What made you decide to take a leadership role and fill that need? Well, the gap and the need had been identified by our local hospital's nursing and case management staff. They wanted to improve patient and family care around end of life. And as the local hospice medical director, I was invited to join the multidisciplinary task force. And we soon recognized and became part of this national palliative care movement, which at that time had been catalyzed by uh, really robust philanthropic support and public policy development. For example, the Center to Advance Palliative Care had just been founded, um, funded by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And our team was able to go to New York City, to Mount Sinai Medical Center, where this, where CAPSI was initially located, and sit in on Diane Meyer's team meetings. We had the privilege of being mentored very directly. Diane Meyer is an internist and geriatrician who has been one of the national champions in uh, palliative medicine for the last 30 years. And she was the founding director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care, which I would say itself has advocated for and driven the increase in palliative care availability nationally. They publish a scorecard every year about palliative care availability in your state. They have a lot of continuing education on their website. They do direct mentoring and highlight uh, exemplary programs in palliative care across the country. I think that's a, a really important point to emphasize. I think that one of the 
more widespread misconceptions about palliative care is that it is only for the end of life or that it is only for patients who have terminal illnesses. Absolutely. I mean, we have heard repeatedly and less frequently, fortunately, over the years that a patient is, quote, not ready, end quote, for palliative care because people in general and medical staff members, physicians, conflate it with hospice, which by most insurers' definition is end-of-life care. But hospice is palliative care for the end of life. The trend in the last 15 to 20 years has been to introduce palliative care as early in the course of serious illness as possible. Mimi, one one thing that I'm curious about, you know, I've thought a lot about the fact that I think a lot of us when we're growing up, at least if we grew up in the States, come to have this idea of a doctor that a doctor is a place where you go to get fixed from what's wrong, right? So the maybe primordial image is, is your mom putting a Band-Aid on your knee when you scrape your knee, then you get strep throat and you go to the doctor and they give you antibiotics and it makes you better. And of all of the kinds of doctors, you could make an argument that an emergency room doctor is sort of the pinnacle of that mentality, right? Because many people go into the emergency department, whatever is wrong, the emergency department doctor stitches up their laceration or, you know, gets them off to the surgery that they need for their appendicitis or whatever it is. They figure out the problem and figure out a way to fix it. And I'm struck by the fact that you sort of went from the place where you do the most fixing of problems to a place where, at least on the surface, it would probably appear to many people that you don't fix any of the problems, right? Most of the what the palliative care doctors do appears not to, quote, fix, unquote, things, right? It, it, it's more of a sort of a being in the problem with the patient and starting from there rather than fixing it and sending the patient on their way. I, I'm just curious how that transition was because it, it strikes me as something that seems to me like it might have been a pretty dramatic change. I think I chose emergency medicine training because I wanted to be confident that I could manage anything, whatever rolled in the door, or at least the first 30 minutes of anything. As you know, emergency medicine selects for a certain type, impatient, action-oriented, drawn to variety, unpredictability, and rapid diagnostic processing. But I also loved all the human encounters, all the stories, and I wanted to create the best possible patient experiences. I I was very intentional in dealing with death in the emergency department, especially communicating with families. And I did the best I could with the time I could make. But I think I had a sense of wanting more. I've had a handful of lightning bolt experiences in my career, and one of them was watching a Bill Moyers PBS series called Healing in the Mind in the mid-1990s. It made me realize that I felt called to the relief of suffering, but I didn't have the knowledge or skills to do that optimally. That led me to train in mindfulness-based stress reduction at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester, And I think it set the stage for my involvement in hospice. Is there a patient that comes to your mind as someone who uh, fundamentally transformed your relationship to medicine? Uh, Perhaps a pivotal moment that made you realize that your chosen path, a, a combination of 
emergency and palliative medicine was the most meaningful work that you could do? Gosh, there are so many stories, and I, I, I can say I wish that I'd kept more notes along the way as I've forgotten a lot of details. Uh, I remember one of our early palliative care consultations. We were a hospital-based program to start. The patient was a, a man in, in his mid to late 50s who I recall had been admitted with hypercalcemia. This was in late May or June. His wife was a nurse. She was a lactation consultant. So her work was quite far from serious illness. The couple had just been to a family college graduation out of town a few days before, and the patient had had trouble navigating the steps in the stadium and seemed slowed down in general. So they uh, went to see his primary care physician, did some lab, found the elevated calcium. He was referred to the hospital. The patient's wife, the nurse, was furious at him, furious, as if he were choosing to be difficult. On my evaluation, he was rather apathetic and difficult to engage, had nothing focal neurologically, but I came away with a gut feeling that he probably had a malignancy with brain involvement, which proved to be true, and his wife was devastated even more angry, guilty, grieving, distraught, really in crisis. The patient remained mildly encephalopathic even after his hypercalcemia was corrected, so it was difficult to engage him in goals of care planning, advanced directive discussion. The couple had several children, teenagers and young adults, including a daughter who was planning a wedding for the holidays in about six months. We had a series of family meetings to allow the wife and the children, with the patient present, but as I said, he wasn't very engaged, to allow them to process and, and plan. With my faulty memory, I think he may have had non-small cell lung cancer with brain meds, and he probably had whole brain radiation. He was discharged to home on hospice. They pulled it together to have the wedding at home two weeks later, just before he became bedridden. And he survived only another week or so. It was very affirming at that time. It seemed clear to me that the intensive family work and support we did with our nursing and social work colleagues and spiritual care colleagues allowed the, the family, the wife especially, to reach some acceptance and make a transition in priorities. And that without our palliative care presence, that wouldn't have happened. And it wasn't our special skills. It was that no one else had the time or perhaps the vision of what was possible. And the family would have been alone, felt abandoned, frightened, in chaos, and hospice perhaps would have done some damage control and provided bereavement services. So it's important to point out that 20 years later, we're in a very different era of oncology, certainly the most hopeful of my career beyond my imagining. And moving from hospice that quickly seems unusual from today's perspective. But at that time, metastatic 
lung cancer with brain involvement, had a very, very poor prognosis. That's a really powerful story. You know, one of the things that's really striking to me about being a palliative care doctor, you know, we could talk about, for instance, a surgeon also accompanies a patient, but most often the surgeon accompanies the patient through this very harrowing episode that then most of the time results in the cancer being taken out or the appendix being fixed or, you know, whatever it is. But for a palliative care doctor, not always, but often you accompany the patient up until the time they die. And that's a really striking idea for me. And and I think something that is very far outside of the normal experience, probably of most of our listeners, because we tend to keep death sort of, uh, you know, roped off from the rest of our lives. So I was wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about what it's like to accompany patients right up until the time they die. Well, I, I agree with you that we are a death avoiding society. And modern medicine is a death-avoiding culture. I've seen improvement in that during my career. But death avoidance is a relatively recent phenomenon in human history, uh, really just starting in the mid-20th century with the burgeoning of modern medicine with the antibiotic era. And understandably, we each regard our own mortality with cognitive dissonance. It just seems impossible to imagine. I would assert that for those of us privileged to survive into maturity, we have greater longevity in the last generation or two. The inevitability of death really gives meaning to life, and while a mystery, it always has. So I'll I'll cite two other sort of lightning bolt moments that inform my understanding of palliative care work. First is... um, Laura Carstensen, who's the director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. Uh, Dr. Carstensen articulated the theory of socio-emotional selectivity, which is a mouthful. Uh, Based on her extensive research, Carstensen essentially demonstrated that when we recognize we don't have all the time in the world, we see our priorities most clearly. Second and related, in the tradition of developmental psychology of uh, Jung and Erickson, Ira Bayak, a physician now in California, articulated the what he calls the developmental tasks of the end of life. And they include completing worldly affairs, completing relationships in the community, completing our relationships with our inner circle, achieving a sense of meaning in life, experiencing forgiveness, giving forgiveness. His, his work can be found at irabyock.org, and he has published a number of books. Those tasks can't be completed in a couple of hours or in a weekend. And to me, the implications for medicine are clear, because if you don't know that your time is short, Most people don't know to do the work. And it's central to dying well for both patients and families who carry that experience into the future. So as healthcare providers, we owe patients 
the truth delivered in a compassionate and culturally sensitive framework. And though our prognostic science is imperfect, we owe patients and families our best efforts at prognostication. This gives them the opportunity to make a lot of meaning at the end of life and to help heal relationships, to make amends, to make sense, to be at peace. I imagine that as a palliative care doctor who is present with the patient while they're grappling with these tasks, you often help facilitate that in some way, help guide them through that process? Well, uh, let me be clear. Sometimes in dealing with symptom management at the end of life, and we talk, you know, morphine is one of our key tools, and we have to make it clear to both patients and families that we're not talking about hastening death or shortening life. But yes, I think people need to know what to expect. So I will share my best intuition uh, about what to expect, uh, acknowledging that I may be wrong, as we often are uh, in prognosis. And I believe it's important to commit to each patient family with confidence that we will take best possible care of him or her or help put best possible care in place. And I, in my experience, people die as they live. We need to know them personally and know what they want, know their values and goals, hopes and fears, so we can address those and not make presumptions. And I think all of that contributes to, I don't know if there's such a thing as a good death, that could be debated, but I think there's a better death and a worse death, and better is infinitely preferable to worse. Now we can ask what do most Americans want. They want to avoid physical suffering. They want to avoid prolonging the dying process. They want to avoid burdening their families. They want realistic, truthful information. They want to maintain a sense of control and of hope. And they want to die at home. If we can find out where our patients are with their wishes and preferences, we can work to help make that happen. The elements that you mentioned that people want for their end of life, do you see that often playing out in practice when you are actually with patients who are in their last moments, the last few days, say, are what you listed, those, those survey results, are they actually the, the themes that you've seen over and over again that uh, help patients die better? Well, I will say that we noted, I believe it was in 2020, that was the first time in the United States that more adults died in their place of residence, which includes nursing homes, than in a hospital. So that is a change. And I would say, you know, I, I see a pre-selected population as a consultant. But yes, I think those things are achievable. And I think it's important to keep in mind that our first priority is symptom management. And that if we can liberate people from physical pain, which we can 
in the vast majority of cases without undue sedation. It liberates them to do that work, to explore spiritual issues, to resolve social issues. So I'm very optimistic about the end of life. Optimistic about the end of life. <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic about peace and possibility at That's the end wonderful. of life. Wonderful sentiment. Pivoting slightly, you mentioned stories several times already. Uh, I know that you are interested in narrative medicine. Can you develop that a little bit more? Uh, what is narrative medicine, and in what ways can storytelling help both clinicians and patients? Well, I'll definitely endorse Dr. Rita Charon's 2006 book on narrative medicine, which is a very rich and rewarding text. And she's at Columbia University, where they have a master's program in narrative medicine. But I'll share a much simpler example of the power of story. I, I will say that narrative medicine is not only about patient stories and patient journeys, but it's about our journeys and stories as healthcare providers as well. You know, mining those for the rich lessons we can learn. But a simple example, when I was starting an outpatient palliative care practice in our hospital's cancer center, I was driving and heard someone talking about life story conversations on a business management podcast. So I thought, this is a lightning bolt moment for me. I incorporated asking my new patients who had been referred to the palliative care office, unless they had acute symptom management issues that we would prioritize dealing with first. I told them it's, it, that it would be very helpful if they would tell me their life story in five minutes that they could take two minutes or 15 minutes, that I had lots of information about their illness, but very little information about them, and to start with where they were born. Now, I, I was interested in th that personal story, and I wanted to put the person, not the illness, at the center of our interaction, and I wanted to establish trust. I found that I could infer their values and goals from their stories, but the experience proved to be so much more. It took me by surprise. Both the patient and I, or the patient family and I, because there would often be a spouse, sometimes children, we were all elevated by this process. Now, this wasn't really storytelling. It wasn't a performance. No one expected to be asked for their life story. It was a very simple exercise. But I learned that we are always prepared to tell our story because we've been telling it to ourselves throughout our lives, starting in adolescence. In exploring this, I learned about the work of Professor Dan McAdams of Northwestern University, who has studied life stories for decades. He's an expert on what he calls narrative identity, which he describes as an internalized story we create about ourselves. It's not an exhaustive biography but sort of a parallel about who we are, where we came from, how we got this way, and what it all means. We make in doing this what McAdams called narrative choices, and most people tell what he calls redemptive stories about their pasts, transitioning from bad to good, overcoming a challenge, going from suffering to salvation. 
with a negative experience followed by a positive experience that resulted from the negative experience and gave it meaning. So our life stories that we cultivate become psychological resources. We use them to help us make decisions and move forward in life. So telling our stories affirms our values, increases our resilience, and fosters a sense of hope and peace of mind because it reminds us of our strengths. And that's the transcendent thing I was experiencing with patients and families in this little exercise that far exceeded my expectations. And I must say, I wish, I wish that I had kept more notes about patients and stories just to help me remember them all. So I encourage listeners, especially medical students, to cultivate the habit of making short HIPAA compliant, of course, uh, memory prompting notes about their clinical experiences. You know, more a, a sketchbook than a formal journal. Mimi, I, I was wondering, you've talked so eloquently about the importance of storytelling and how that starts even very early on in a person's life and then evolves as the person continues living. I was wondering, as you have worked particularly with those who are approaching the end of their lives and who maybe know that they're approaching the end of their lives, and that may be part of the reason that they're trying to tell their story to themselves or to those they love, what insights, if you had to choose a couple of themes or common insights that stand out to you, what insights become apparent to people about their own life stories as they approach the ends of their lives that maybe were not apparent to them before they took that time for reflection? Well, I'll, I'll hearken back to the work of Laura Carstensen, which is that when your time horizon is short, you have a new clarity about what matters most. Uh, in particular, if there's an opportunity for healing, for forgiveness of self and of others, and for reaching a sense of resolution, of completing the arc of an individual story, of making sense of a life, that I repeatedly see people moving toward that. One of the things that is distinctive about medicine is that it gives those who practice it access to places or situations or scenarios that no one else gets to access, right? So surgeons have access to the inner workings of our bodies. And palliative care doctors, as we've referenced here multiple times, have access to walking repeatedly these very difficult journeys with their patients that sometimes lead right up until death. And I'm just curious, as, as a person who has had access to that sacred place, are there any lessons for the living that you would bring back with you or that you can share with our listeners, maybe ways that this has changed you or things that you know now because you have had this experience that you wish you would have known before or that you think might be helpful to others? Well, first, I'd like to give a shout out to any medical students listening. They often feel like the lowest person in the food chain, but um, they're often the ones who spend the most time with patients. And they may, because of that, become the most trusted person on the team. Sometimes it's the medical student who asks enough questions 
to find the key that unlocks a clinical puzzle. So I would say keep the faith. And I'll offer a quote that's attributed to Plato and uh, various others, which is, uh, be kind for everyone you meet is carrying a great burden. And I'd add to follow the golden rule to treat others as you'd like to be treated or as you'd like your mother or sister or brother to be treated, and you'll never go wrong. And as for lessons from patients, I, I can paraphrase the top five regrets of the dying, which is a book by a, a hospice nurse. I think her name is Bronnie Ware, W-A-R-E. Uh, first, to live your own life, not the life that others expect of you. Second, don't work too much or too hard. Uh, three, express your feelings. Four, stay in touch with friends and loved ones. And five, give yourself permission to be happy. We know intellectually that life can change in an instant. And I think that can help us be grateful for each ordinary day. Can you elaborate a little bit on the last point? Giving yourself permission to be happy. In your experience, have you met with patients who who have taught you what that means? In my experience, to let yourself be happy is related to patients will say, I regret that I didn't allow myself to be happy, which also means I was living the life I, I was told I should, should live, and I was not being my authentic self. I think we're all challenged to accept ourselves, and if we get a lot of messages from, say, our family of origin or society that they would prefer that we be something else, that we have to struggle with that. But I think we should trust ourselves to grow in the direction uh, of our, our hearts and souls. And if we do, we are more likely to have a life that's filled with meaning. You know, I just reviewed a lot of the popular psychological literature for doing a, a, a talk for the Distinguished Career Institute fellows. And um, the transition seems to have been from happiness in maybe the 2010s to meaning. And when we say let yourself be happy, it's not, you know, happy-go-lucky. I think it's more allow yourself to be content, satisfied, achieve a sense of meaning. That's really wonderful. Thank you very much, Mimi, for your time, for your wisdom and insights from your years of practice and leadership in palliative medicine. Well, thank you, Henry. What a privilege to be with you. Thank you for joining our conversation on this week's episode of The Doctor's Art. You can find program notes and transcripts of all episodes at thedoctorsart.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our show available for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to share the podcast with any friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy the program. And if you know of a doctor, patient, or anyone working in healthcare who would love to explore meaning in medicine with us on the show, feel free to leave a suggestion in the comments. I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. We hope you can join us next time. Until then, be well.